Tina Arundel, and this is Prescription for Hope. Close your eyes for a moment. What image comes to your mind when I say pot smoker? What about crack user? Or how about meth head? Now, what person appears in your mind when I say heroin addict? Movies, TV, music, the nightly news, they've all had a part in creating stereotypes of addicts. Over the past century, this typecasting, often with a racial bias, has not only been dishonest, but it's caused real harm. It's fueled this lock em up mentality. It's limited resources for treatment and recovery. It's perpetuated a stigma that keeps drug addiction and those suffering with it in the shadows of shame. So what appeared in your mind when I said heroin addict? It probably wasn't Aaron Marks. I invited him into our studio to chat and to be honest, I was a bit stunned when I saw him. I just have to say I'd like to address stigma for a second. I knew a little bit about your backstory and I didn't know what you looked like. I walk in here and polished, professional, suit and tie, glasses. It it, it completely goes against the stigma that's out there of perhaps an addict or former addicts. Going to treatment for me was one of the biggest eye-opening pieces of the idea of like what an addict was. Like, I mean, I was in treatment with people who were rock stars, people who were blue collar workers, people who were doctors, people who were homemakers, people who lived on the streets, people who came from broken homes, people who came from great homes. I mean, it was people with money, without money. I mean, it was incredible. It was such a melting pot. Aaron, who's 34 years old, grew up with the same stereotypes. And because of them, he knew he couldn't be a drug addict. So stigma is is massive because not only does it affect how we perceive other people with issues, but it also affects how we perceive ourselves as we start to develop issues, right? So because I was not aware of you know, the fact that someone like me could become addicted to drugs in the way that I did. And so as I slowly started to kind of progress through my own personal addiction, I didn't see it coming, right? Because I was still able to wear the same clothes I wore, shower, had a place to live. So like to me, like, you know, I still looked and acted the same for years, right? It was it was that slow progression that you sort of kind of can justify your way out of acknowledging that you're facing this massive issue because you can go, well, I'm, I'm clearly not an addict. I can't be. I can't. It's just me being young or maybe I just like to do things a little bit more than other people. There's a million excuses that you tell yourself, but that stigma has massive effects to probably contributing to the problem itself as well. I don't know. What else do you want to know? What's your story? Um, so, yeah, I grew up on the east side. I grew up in Beechwood, you know, normal kind of upbringing, great supportive family. Uh, my dad owns an office furniture company down in Cleveland, 82nd and Carnegie. Discount desk, office supplies, still there, 30-some years. And so, yeah, just grew up like any other kid in Cleveland, love all the sports teams sometimes, even though that's stressful and (laughs) painful. So let's go back to the beginning. How did this start for you? Yeah, for me, it was... I mean, it started innocently enough. It was kind of a a combination. So I was in high school. I was a couple things. So A, 
I enjoyed drinking and getting high with my friends. It wasn't a hugely overwhelming thing at the time. It felt innocent enough, but also right around that same time, I ended up having just like a dental procedure. I had my wisdom teeth pulled out and was prescribed Vicoprofen, which is pretty common today. Uh, I think, <laughs> I don't think my parents or their parents ever were prescribed that kind of medicine for a simple, you know, kind of dental procedure. But at some point it became really normal to prescribe highly, you know, narcotic drugs for a pretty simple procedure. So I was prescribed those and right away it was like, it just grabbed me. I was like, oh, this is, it's like this, this, you know, of all the things that I've done, this is the one, this is what I like. What did it do to you? Um, you know, it just, it just made everything feel right. I mean, that's the best way I can describe it. It's just everything felt right. And I was like, this is good. I feel good physically. I feel good mentally, emotionally. This feels good. And then I was in high school in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it was kind of during the boom of the over-prescribing, right? So not only was I prescribed, but everybody's parents, all your friends. I mean, it was everyone was being prescribed these pills on such a regular basis that you could go to anyone's uh, medicine cabinet and find them. So it became really, it was really easy for me to just get them. So once I liked it, it was, I was able to continue that feeling, constantly take it and feel better and better and better. But I, <laughs> I'm a person who's naturally, I have an addictive personality. If, if it's cookies, like I can't have one cookie, I have 10 cookies. So you kind of couple that with these pills that are extremely physically addictive. And so what started off with, oh, this you know, feels good, this is something I want to do, kind of relatively quickly became, oh, like I need to have this or else now I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to feel worse. I'm going to start, you know, I started going through withdrawal if I didn't have them. So it became this thing that it was, you know, now it wasn't even really a choice anymore. It was kind of this thing like I had to do every single day. How long were you taking them before you started feeling that you were dependent? You know, honestly, like it happens so, it's so sneaky how it happens that I don't even know. It was just like all of a sudden one day, it went from, oh, this is what I want to be doing to, oh, I'm just doing it, to the like, oh, I need to do it. What about your friends? Were they recreational? Uh... Some, right? I don't, you know, I don't want to... <laughs> I want to throw anybody under the bus. Now, some people, yeah, some people use as frequently as I did. Some people, it really was not uncommon to like be at a party and someone would just like pull out pills and people would take them. It's funny, there was stigma around all the wrong things. There was no stigma around these pills. Like everyone thought that they were safe, that, oh, these come from a doctor. Nobody looks at it the way they look at heroin or crack cocaine or something like that. We should, <laughs> you know, we should, but we don't. So... You continued this through college. Uh, how long was it before you decided, oh my gosh, something needs to change? Yeah. So I wish it was that clean, that story. <laughs> uh, so what happened for me was through my last couple of years of high school, I was taking the pills. Then right around that time, 
it was when Oxycontin came onto the kind of market. And so now, you know, what had traditionally been Percocet and Vicodin, 5, 10, 15 milligrams, you know, take a couple pills here and there, was now being kind of prescribed at 20, 40, 80, 160 milligrams. So all of a sudden you're, you're taking much more. It doesn't have the additives in it. So like the acetaminophen or the, um, or ibuprofen or anything like that. So it's just the pure form. It's essentially, it was heroin. <laughs> My addiction really took off, and that was towards the end of high school into college. So in my freshman year of college, I was completely addicted. And it was through that that, you know, I was buying the pills from a fellow student in my dorm rooms. And I went to him, uh, you know, started going through withdrawal. I went to him to get more, and he was out, and he introduced me to heroin. You know, at, at that moment, this is one of those other things about stigma. I mean, stigma kind of goes through the whole story, right? And so like at that moment, I remember, here's what I remember thinking and not thinking. I remember not thinking that I shouldn't take heroin. That was not a thought. But I remember thinking, I don't want anyone to know that I'm taking heroin. Like I would do anything to not feel the way I feel, right? I mean, I was going through withdrawal. If heroin's gonna fix it, give me heroin, the end. But like the kids in high school who would take the occasional pill, I don't want them to know about the fact that I'm doing heroin. What if my parents found out? What, you know, what if, whatever, no. But it didn't stop me, not a chance, not a chance. I snorted a line of heroin and nothing different happened between that and taking the Oxycontin because they're almost exactly the same. So then it was like, then there were no longer this, the boundary was gone because now I felt like clearly it's just lie. It's lies. It's not true. Like heroin's not a hard drug. It's just a misunderstanding. And I'm different. I mean, because it just didn't feel like I, I couldn't see any consequence there. And then from then on, there was no hesitation with heroin, right? Because I'd already kind of crossed that line. So I'd like to get some details about the your day-to-day life. You know, when I was in the, the real kind of throes of it, I would snort a line and or two, and I don't know. I mean, however much time would go by, would go by. And whenever you felt like it, you would do more. The idea was never to let yourself kind of get to the point where you start to feel withdrawal. That's the ideal. At first you're doing it and you're like, okay, this is fine. I like this. I'm doing that. And you're like, I'm going to do more. But then you can't necessarily afford or maintain that, right? So now it's like you start rationing and then it just becomes this, how soon can I get to the drug dealer? How am I going to avoid that feeling? It's coming. I can feel it. It's like terror because it's like you're just petrified of feeling that way. You do not want to. I mean, withdrawal is awful. Talk about it. Yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, I know the the kind of cliche thing is like, oh, it's the worst flu you've ever had. But it, it really is. I mean, it's like imagine food poisoning on top of the flu, on top of, you know, getting like beat up nine rounds in a, you know, a, a boxing match. I mean, it, it is like your whole body hurts. You're waking up with cold sweats nauseous, sometimes even vomiting, headaches, blurred vision. I mean, it's just, just horrible. So then it becomes this, like anything to not feel that. 
So that's why when you see people doing all these desperate things, it's not to say that's excusable or that's okay, but it's like, I get it. I can understand how somebody in a complete state of desperation would do something terrible, right? Because they're just like, they don't know what else to do. They just are, you know, they have to get out of that feeling. And so that sort of became my life towards, you know, towards the end, especially it really became this like constant and exhausting battle of like trying to like manage the clock, manage your dollars, manage your, you know, supply, manage, uh, you know, your, your life on top of that. Talk about how easy it is to find heroin. You can just get it. Now, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean, now it's like, you know, I've been in recovery for 13 and a half years. So for me, it may have been a little bit harder, but it wasn't that hard. You know, you hear about how how easy it is to get now. These, these It's in high schools. It's in parking lots. It's, it's everywhere. Did your parents find out? Not until I told them. What was that like? Well, luckily it was me asking for help. I reached out to them and, you know, was like, I need to get better. They knew something was wrong because the last time I saw them before I got treatment, like the facade was kind of gone. It had gotten so bad that like I had lost a lot of weight. I, I was using all the time. So it means like when I saw them, I couldn't just not use. So I had to be using while I saw them. They, they, I don't think they could quite put their finger on what it was, but they knew something was wrong. So I think when I called for help, they were ready for it. They knew that, that I needed something, but they didn't know it was what it was. And they, they didn't know it was heroin until I actually was in treatment and they came for like a, you know, like a family day. And that's when I told them and they were like mind blown. I could not believe that, you know, their, their son was using heroin. I mean, it was like unbelievable. Let's talk about the day that you decided you need to talk to your parents and ask for help. Yeah. So I had a big event happen. It was probably seven months before I got sober, but I picked up the phone to call a friend for something completely unrelated. And he was like, oh, did you hear what happened? And I said, no. And he told me that um, a good friend of ours had died from a heroin overdose. And then I found out in that same phone call that my best friend since preschool had checked himself into treatment. And so it's sort of one of those crossroad moments, right? You're like, I'm either going to get better or I'm going to die. Can I ask you the best friend from preschool? Mm -hmm. Were you using together? Oh, yeah. During that period of time, so he started getting better, right? Because he went to treatment. Then he came out of treatment and he kept kind of going with recovery. And since he's like my best friend, he's a, he was like the only person I felt like I could be transparent with. So like, he'd call me and be like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm on my way to Dayton right now. I'm going to, I just, I'm going to pick up heroin. He's like, don't do it. Turn around. And then I, or he'd call me on my way back. He'd throw it out the window. I'm like, dude, I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw it out the window. But he just kept calling me. Hey, you gotta, you gotta get your life together. You gotta stop. And he even came down to Cincinnati and that was like, like a really eye-opening experience because I saw him 
and he looked amazing. You know what I mean? He looked healthy. He had this like look in his eyes of like a human being. And I was as far from that. I mean, I would think I was in like a robe of like sitting on my like couch when he came in. And it stuck. That that kind of image stuck. I don't remember how long it was after that, but it was a combination of kind of seeing that, hearing him, and then just generally being exhausted from like living, uh, you know, what is really not a great life. And that's why like, I get really upset when people are like, well, they're choosing to do that. Trust me, no one, no one like wants to live like that. Nobody chooses to live like that. I assume responsibility for like taking that first pill or smoking that first joint or whatever, but like something about my brain, it took me there. Like I was like sitting in the back seat. I'm just there because nobody wants to live like that, period. It is horrible. There's nothing glamorous or fun or exciting about that lifestyle. And so kind of seeing him, hearing him, talking to him, being exhausted, running out of money, you know, just everything kind of all kind of compounded. And really it was just like a, a moment, right? A decision. I just like picked up the phone and just was like, I need help. And it was that easy where you, could you just stop? Well, I, I couldn't just stop. I had to go to <laughs> detox treatment, the whole thing, right? I mean, I was definitely addicted. But where I'm fortunate, and I think we need to remain kind of empathetic to, to people, is I had that person to call. I had that place to go. I had that insurance. I, I had the ability to, when I, was, when I was ready in that moment to get better, I had access I had to sit and wait for six weeks or a month to get, you know, a bed or whatever it was, I probably wouldn't have gotten sober. Um, are you scared of a relapse? I'm not scared of a relapse, but I am, I respect the fact that I could relapse. And so I always keep that in mind. I'm never like too cocky, right? Like, oh, well, I got this thing figured out. I'm comfortable in my life. I don't feel like, I don't feel a relapse coming. I don't see a relapse coming, but I've seen too many people kind of fall. So like, I, I respect it. You know, you have to, it's just, I'm aware of it. Why are you, you right now and not in a cemetery? Hmm. Um, you know, a, a lot of it is luck. It's luck that stems from a place that at that beginning moment in that first kind of stage when you're in treatment or whatever, that I was just, that I just believed the people that told me what to do. Cause I could have just easily, like I had done a million times in my past, like been like, eh, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm different. I'm different. Don't tell me I can't drink. Don't tell me I can't smoke pot. That's somebody else. My problem's heroin. Leave me alone. I'm going to go back out there and do my thing. But I didn't. I was just like, Okay, that's, you're right, you're right. Do you think there's hope? I do. I mean, obviously I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in, in other people's lives. And not just from heroin, from alcohol, from crack cocaine, from, you know, debilitating mental illness. Like people can get better. We see 
people in just horrible situations, they can get better, but they need help, they need support. And we can't bury our head in the sand and pretend like this problem is just gonna solve itself. And I think it's also really important, I know we're talking about the opiate crisis, but it's also important to remember that this is just addiction and mental health as a whole. Like we have to continue to work towards this. As these numbers start to go down, it's just gonna shift somewhere else if we don't fix the actual problem. If somebody suffering from an opioid use disorder is listening, what would you tell them? Hey, you're not alone, right? There's a lot of other people suffering. I think sometimes people feel like they're on an island. You're not, there's a lot of people suffering. And it's probably hard right now to get help because there's so many people suffering, but you know, hopefully they, they can find that help. Call around, try to find yourself into, even if it's just into an emergency room or something, just start that process, get somewhere. And then also, because we're dealing with something that's so deadly, if you're not ready to get help, if you're not ready to get out of that life, you know, make sure you're being safe, right? There's the needle exchange at Circle Health. There's Project Dawn here with uh, the naloxone kits and what Dr. Papp and her team are, is doing. Not everyone wants to get sober. Not everyone's ready to leave. So like we have to implement harm, harm reduction strategies too, right? Just because somebody doesn't want to get better doesn't mean that they don't deserve to live. You do talk about everything so freely and so openly. It's really wonderful. You know, how are you really able to overcome perhaps the stigma or the shame of addiction? I think it's that I truly believe it's nothing to be ashamed of. I believe that. I don't think there's any shame in it. There shouldn't be. And we should be talking about it. If I had diabetes or cancer, or even, you know, if, if people go, oh, you can't draw that line. Okay, fine. If you don't want to draw that, draw that line, draw it to extreme depression or schizophrenia or whatever. If I had that, should I be ashamed of it? Should I not talk about it? Why? What good does that do? There was like a moment that I view as almost like a pivotal moment for me and it was a job interview, something just simple, like it was a restaurant job. The guy asked, he said, what's uh, the most difficult thing you've ever had to overcome? And it was one of those just like, just like a cliche interview question. You can answer it like, well, you know, when I was a child and whatever, you can throw out any kind of BS answer you want. And it was like this split second moment where I remember like having an internal debate. This all happened within seconds, but it was like, do it, don't do it. Do I, should I just do it? Should I just be honest? So I did. I was like, I said, I'm in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction and I've been sober for the past two years. It was honestly, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I had to completely change my life. And he took his clipboard and he like put it down and he was like, you know, my wife's father's been sober for 25 years. And we started talking and it turned into this real conversation. And it was at that moment that I realized that almost everyone is either affected personally or knows someone and it's okay to talk about it. And why aren't we talking about it? Because everybody's quiet about it and keeps it in and it's like, it's bad, right? No, we, we could talk about this. It's not, there's nothing to be ashamed of. That's who I was and I should be proud that I figured out a way out of it and I don't need to hide it. And so if I carry my, my story like that, then who cares? 
Did you get that job? I did. This is a song called Suburban by a band called All These Kings. They saw some moderate success around Boston about 10 years ago. Yes, that's Aaron on vocals. Aaron, thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Next time on Prescription for Hope, how Metro Health is training doctors to prescribe fewer opioids, still treat pain, and how to say no. Okay, well then just give me the Percocet. No, I'm not giving you Percocet. My name is Dennis Dickens. I'm a greeter here at Metro Health Medical Center, main campus. Prescription for Hope is a production of the Metro Health System, which is working hard to become the most admired public hospital system in the nation. Good, okay, beautiful, thank you.